usually say at the beginning of my messages, all right? Our mission here is very, very simple, to know Jesus and to make him known in this local community. Now, that's very broad, but it's at the core of every single thing we do here. We want everything we do at the church to help people know Jesus and equip people to make him known in BG and beyond. Everything we do stems from this mission. Youth group, covenant kids, worship, everything. We seek to be a church with a singular focus, to know Jesus and to make him known in this local community. And uh, I think there's a slide that's supposed to go with that. Yes, there we go. And as you've seen before, we talk a little, lot about the triangle. We like shapes here at Covenant Church. And this triangle helps us serve, as, kind of serves as an ideal to help us be a more balanced church. Where we focus on our relationship with God in Jesus Christ, our relationship with one another inside the church community, and our relationship with the local community outside of the church. And sometimes you'll hear us say, we want to be a more outward-focused church. That's, that stems from this model of the triangle that we've been espousing the past six or so months. We want to be a church known for loving God, loving people in the church, and loving the community outside the four walls of uh, Bowling Green Covenant Church. So as a church, we want to know Jesus. We want to make him known. We want to be a balanced church by building relationships with God, with people in the local church, and people in the local community. But how do we do that? And there's four core values that we really espouse here at Covenant Church. Number one, we preach the gospel. We preach God's truth, God's word with confidence. We believe that the gospel has the power to change lives. And as a church, our priority, our number one priority is to preach the good news of Jesus Christ to people who so desperately need it. Number two, we like to cultivate worship. The gospel, the good news that Jesus came, died, rose again for our sins, is coming back to restore and redeem this broken, fallen creation that leads us to worship God with our entire lives. Worship isn't about singing. It's not about playing music. It's about sacrificing everything we are so that Jesus Christ gets the glory. Number three, We live out our mission by creating community. The gospel leads us to find good community where we can be accountable to one another, we can disciple one another, serve one another, love one another, and just be with one another in good Christian fellowship. The gospel creates this local community that we call the local church. And number four, the way we live out our mission here is living on mission. And the gospel is too good to just be kept to ourselves. It compels us to live our lives in such a way that we show Jesus Christ's love to our local community in a myriad of ways, but primarily through the way that we live our lives. So that's our mission and vision for Covenant Church. It's the mission that we believe God has us on, and it's a mission that we're super passionate about. And if you have any questions about where we're at or where we're going as a church, feel free to get in touch with me. Well, this morning we'll be continuing our study in the book of James called uh, Theology and Motion. And as I've said before, James's goal is for us to put our theology, what we believe about God, into motion. Uh, And this series has really drawn me closer to God, and it's really encouraged me and blessed me and really challenged me. And I hope it has done the same for you as well. And just to contextualize where we're at, last week we talked about submitting to God through repentance, through saying that we're wrong to God and humbly accepting his grace. Well, in our passage today, James continues this particular theme of submission to God. 
And I think it's a strong word that as Christians we desperately need to hear. So if you have your copy of God's word, please turn with me to James chapter 4, verse 11. And I want you to think about this big idea as I go through my sermon. That everything we have in this world, our hearts, our time, and our money, everything belongs to Jesus Christ. So will you please pray with me, and then we'll dig into this text. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll illuminate our hearts, uh, you'll illuminate your word, and open our hearts and minds to the different things that you want us to know today, Lord, in your word. I pray that your word will come alive, that it'll transform our hearts, our minds, everything we are from the inside out, so we can faithfully live as your disciples who want to know you and make you known in this local community. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, James writes this. He says, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? I love how he begins that passage by saying this, brothers and sisters, because James's tone throughout the entire book is pretty harsh. He doesn't pull any punches, all right? But instead, he reminds us that he's our brother in Christ. He's not only the brother of Christ, one of the brothers of Christ, but he is our brother in Christ. And that's something that we forget a lot, that, that all these apostles, James and, and Paul, Apollos, all those guys back in the day, they were all brothers in Christ. And they were essentially on the same kind of journey that we find ourselves in. So I love how James kind of dilutes this harsh tone that he has throughout the book by calling us brothers and sisters. It's something that we forget most of the time. But that's kind of where the pleasantries end. Remember, James is on a mission to get us to live our life on a higher standard of Christian living and to put our theology, what we believe about God, into motion. And as a result, he doesn't mess around too much, all right? He tells his brothers and sisters not to slander one another because anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. Now, to clarify just a bit, when James talks about the law, he's not talking about Old Testament law, all those 600-something laws that, that the Jews had to abide by. He's not talking about the law of the land or the governmental laws or whatever. He's talking about the law of Christ, which is love. So he says, when you judge someone, you're denying the law of love. And not only are you denying the law of love, you're saying that the law of love is inadequate for your needs. And by default, the law of love is wrong. For James, if you're denying the law, you're saying you don't believe it. You're saying that you hate it. And remember, James is all about putting what you believe into motion. And that's why he says, when you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting on judgment on it. And there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who was able to save and destroy. So to bring judgment down on a brother or sister in Christ shouldn't really be in the Christian's repertoire of action because that alone belongs to God. And as I've said before, and I'm going to say it again, if you're not a Christian, I'm sorry. Let me apologize to you. We can be really, really harsh people to you sometimes. 
But as Christians, we're called to be humble people because we're all the same. We're created in the image of God. We're marred by sin. We're sinners. And we're separated from God because of sin. But Jesus Christ's death and resurrection 2,000 years ago has provided us that access point so we can access God and have a relationship with him. We're no better than anyone else. We're recipients of, of God's grace. And apart from that, we've got no claim of superiority by any means. That's why James says, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Because who are you? You're someone saved by God's grace and not of yourself. You have no right to judge people because when you judge people, you make yourself out to be like God. So James calls out the people who love to wag a finger at others and in a sense make themselves out to be like God and and take this privilege that only God has alone and claim it for ourselves. So judging that belongs to God. That's, that's what God does. That, that is who God is. That privilege belongs to God. He's merciful. He's gracious. But judging, that belongs to God. We can't do that. But James moves, out to call, moves on to call out another type of people. Those who think that tomorrows are, belong to themselves. That tomorrow is in their plan. He says this in verses, uh, I think, 13 through 17 here. He says, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to the city or that city, spend a day there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Now, a couple things here. Remember when James called his audience brothers and sisters just a few verses prior? Well, right here, when he says, Now listen, he's actually calling us the opposite. Now, now, the feeling that you get when you read the Greek, it, it goes something like this, all right? Now, listen up, you idiots! So that's kind of what it sounds like, right? You know, it's harsh, it's brusque, it's pretty firm, and, and that's what's cool about it is that you don't see this very, very often in Scripture. It, it, scripture is usually pretty gentle and considerate and all that. But James has something he wants to say, something that just annoys him. And it's the people who say this, that today or tomorrow we will go into this city or that city, spend our money there, carry on our business, and make money. And that's something you'll miss if you don't study the Greek. Because that was a common saying among merchants back in the day. They'd make their money, and then they'd make all these elaborate plans to go spend it. And we don't really know uh, exactly who James is talking about here. It could be merchants in the church or it could be merchants outside the church. We don't really know. But regardless, these are people who would concoct these elaborate schemes of how they would spend their money and make more money in the process and plan the rest of their lives without submitting it to God. And I'm sure you do it as well, okay? We save our money. We concoct schemes of what we're going to do with that money. And there's really nothing wrong with it, all right? We can and we should be responsible with, with what God has given us. But the problem comes in when we say that we'll be making plans without considering what God may have in store for us. The problem isn't that we make plans. It's that we assume that these plans will come true regardless of how God enters into the picture. It usually goes something like this. We set out our plans and we put ourselves at the top and then we somehow incorporate God into our scheme. We'll say, I think God wants me to do this or... I really feel like it's God's will. 
And we try and justify our plans using God. But you know what? That's not the proper order of things. And James says this, instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. So James says, instead of making your schemes and your plans without God, you've got to submit them wholeheartedly to God. And it all stems back to trusting in the God who said that he will provide us with our needs and grant us our requests when we ask with pure hearts. When we fail to formulate our plans for the future without taking into account uh, the God who created time in itself, we're indicating that we don't trust God and we know how to spend our time and our money better than God does. So in a sense, a failure to submit our plans for the future to God is idolatry. Now, when I started uh, to study this passage on Monday morning of this week, I, I just knew that God would make me realize this great truth, okay, as he always does. See, every Monday morning or so, I usually try and plan out the rest of my week. I'll, I got my personal to-do list. I got my work to-do list. I got the, my goals for the end of the week. And, and when I started to study this passage, I just knew that God would kind of throw a wrench into my plans. And he did, because that's just how he rolls, all right? Seriously, this week has been filled with impromptu meetings, phone calls, lunches, and, and other stuff that I've had to do. And as a result, my own plans that I worked so hard to concoct, they were kind of thwarted, all right? Now, at the beginning of the week, I did give my plan to God, but he took it and said, I'm going to do something a lot a bit different. And this week has been a very, very busy week, but it was a week where I knew that God was wholeheartedly in control. And honestly, it turned out to be a great week despite it not going the way that I wanted it to. We need to realize that our time is not our own. We worship a sovereign God who is outside of time and space and works everything out for our good in the end. So even though our plans can go awry, and even though we get discouraged that our plans aren't falling into place like we think that they should, we can be encouraged that the God of the universe is taking our plans and tweaking them to achieve our good for his glory. But there's another piece of these few verses which I need to mention as well. James isn't only referring to people who like to take control of their own time, but he's calling out the people who like to boast about it too. And uh, boasting is really prideful speech, as I sometimes like to call it. It's this sense of superiority over others, and it's usually not a good thing. But in Scripture, we see that some boasting can be good, like when we can boast in our afflictions because they're drawing us closer and closer to God, as it says in James chapter 1 and in other places throughout Scripture. But most of the time, boasting is wrong because you're demonstrating the pride that is lodged deep within your heart. And the boasting that James is referring to is boasting in the arrogant schemes, the plans that we make for ourselves. It's saying that I'm going to make my plans without God, and I'm going to go about living my life the way I want it to. And it sort of goes back to kind of what James was saying in chapter 3 about the tongue and taming the tongue. Because the tongue can give great life, and it can give great death. And in this case, when we boast with our mouths about the plans that we make that exclude God— we're showing evidence of the sin that is in our hearts that our tongue is just bringing manifest to. So for James, making plans without submitting them to God is bad, but so is boasting about it too. And listen to this here in verse 17. 
He says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now, I know many of you have heard that verse. It's called the the sin of omission because we know that we should be doing something right, but we often actually neglect to do it. And James could possibly be commenting on a couple verses here in Proverbs, which I'll read to you right now. It says this in Proverbs, Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back later, I'll give it tomorrow, when you now have it with you. So in a sense, you're committing a sin when you have the opportunity to do good and you don't. Because failure to do something good when you have the opportunity and the, and, uh, and the resources to do so, it's not neutral. It's sin. And in the context of these verses here, James is saying that you know that it's a sin to make plans without submitting them to God. So why do you do it anyways? Now, I don't want to remove grace from the equation by any means, okay? God gives us the grace for the times that we fail to follow him. But just because there's grace and forgiveness available, it doesn't mean that we should be lax in our Christian walks. And it applies here too. Sometimes we'll fail to do the right thing when we should. And when we do, we should recognize that we've sinned. We've done something wrong against God. But we should also recognize, too, that we're not perfect, and God sympathizes with us and our weaknesses. Amen? And just to give you an illustration that sort of, you know, combines these two different truths of submitting our plans to God and doing the right thing, I want to tell you a brief story about uh, when I worked as a recruiter. I worked as an admissions recruiter for the seminary I attended for about a year, And that job allowed me to travel across the country, meet some awesome people, uh, see some different things, and attend some really, really cool conferences. And I remember this one youth workers uh, convention conference in Dallas I was at. I was at with my friend Andrew. And we had a great time at this conference. I met a bunch of people, got to eat at some awesome restaurants, and we saw a lot of success uh, for the seminary there. And at that time, I would usually carry about 50 bucks with me so I could spend cash on tolls or food or whatever I needed to. And I remember thinking to myself that I needed all this $50 for parking expenses and for the food that they'd be uh, serving at the convention center. And if I didn't manage our money correctly, we'd have some difficulty paying for things. So I planned everything out to a T. Now, what I didn't know is that Dallas actually has a very, very large homeless population. And during our convention, there were a few homeless people who would wander in and out of the convention center asking people for food and for money. And I remember thinking to myself, man, I I really hope that these people don't ask me for money because I don't have the money to give, apparently. But but lo and behold, because this is how God rolls, all right, homeless man approached me, and he obviously needed money. And when he asked for it, I said, I'm sorry, sir, I don't have anything to spare. And when I said it, I felt absolutely horrible because I knew that I had plenty of money to give to him. But my need to plan and be comfortable outweighed his need for basic necessities. So I prayed for forgiveness on the spot and that God would somehow open up a door so I could see this gentleman again. And I did. And I saw him and I gave him some money for food. And after that, I said to himself, well, if I can't, I said to myself, if I can't afford food uh, or a parking or whatever, I'll be fine because I know I did the right thing. And lo and behold, one of the organizations that was sponsoring this conference uh, provided free food and drinks for everyone on the last day. 
And then as I was leaving the convention center, the convention center actually comped my parking because I was a good person. (laughs) And I still had money to spare. See, my plans were to spend my own money a certain way. But God had other plans, and he used those circumstances to expose my sinfulness that's within my own heart and reveal how he's able to direct my path and my circumstances. See, Proverbs 16.9 says this, In his heart a man plans his steps, but the Lord determines his path. And that's a truth that we need to realize, that in the end, our time belongs to God. And when we make plans without submitting them to God, we're wrong and we're sinning. So James has shown us far, uh, thus far that judging other people belongs to God, and so does time itself. But there's another thing that belongs to God, and that's our money. He says this in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. He says, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and the moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth and luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Like I said, James, he gets pretty harsh here, right? And that's a pretty straightforward critique, supposedly, of people who have money. But whenever you read Scripture, you have to read all of Scripture. You see, we're so guilty of manipulating text into saying something that we want them to mean. I've heard people say the Bible is all for capitalism. You make your money, you invest it as you please, and you live a happy, comfortable life. And you could probably make a case from Scripture like that. I've heard people say the Bible is all for communism. And you can read some passages in the Old Testament and in the book of Acts to kind of demonstrate that or kind of prove that claim. But the Bible isn't for or against any sort of economic system. The question here is over how you steward and spend your money that you've been given, regardless of your socioeconomic context. Now, when we think of wealthy people in the United States, we think of people who make at least six figures a year. And we know that there's people who make a billion dollars a year. Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Donald Trump, whatever. But in actuality, compared to the rest of the world, most Americans are rich. According to the Social Security Administration, the national average wage for 2013 was about $45,000. Now, a couple days ago, I went to globalrichlist.com and typed in this number. And apparently, by global standards, if you make $45,000 a year, you're in the top 0.41% of wage earners in the world. Now, if you divide that number up into, you know, kind of hours that you work, you make about $23.50 an hour. Apparently, the average worker in Indonesia makes $0.39 an hour. And on your salary of $45,000 a year, it only takes two minutes to earn enough money to buy yourself an icy cold Coca-Cola. But for a worker in Zimbabwe, it takes about one hour and seven minutes to earn enough so he can buy himself some of that cola goodness. So by global standards, most of us here are rich. We have houses, we have cars, 
We eat every single day. We go on vacations. We have Netflix. We save our money away. And we have enough to buy our toys at the end of the day. Now, with that kind of perspective in mind, when James is chewing out the wealthy people, you can see that James is talking to most of us. As Americans, we're wealthy people. And there's nothing wrong with having money. What matters is what you do with that money. James addresses the wealthy people in the congregation who hoard their wealth instead of using it to bless people who need it the most. And he's also addressing the wealthy people who use their high status in society to oppress people without money. Now, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. The church, from its inception, has relied on wealthy people to support it. Where do you think the money for the sanctuary came from? You know, people in this congregation sacrificed financially because they believed that their money didn't belong to themselves. It belonged to God and His kingdom. Why do you think thousands of pastors throughout the history of the church were able to make a living off of preaching and teaching the Word of God and overseeing various ministries of the local church? Because as Christians, our money is not our own. It all belongs to God, and it all goes to furthering the kingdom. And in a couple weeks, Craig Dixon, one of our elders, will be talking about the subject of finances because it's an area in which he's passionate about. And he'll share some rich insight into what the Bible teaches us about handling our money. So just to summarize what we've covered in this passage, James is saying to us that there are three major things that belong to God and God alone. Judging others, our time and our plans, and our finances. It's all God's. So how can we apply this text to our lives today? What could James be saying to us right here at Covenant Church this morning? Well, I think the first thing we need to remember is this, is that you are not God. We are not God. Now, you may be thinking, well, well duh, Ben, I, 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 of course I'm not God. You're stupid. But in reality, we sometimes treat ourselves as though we are God. This is my house. This is my time. This is my money. This is my life. But in reality, you have no control over any of it. You might think you do, and God may allow you some of that control. You might, um, and in some ways, you know, we really make ourselves out to be like God. We love the American success story of someone raising themselves up by their own bootstraps. We love the idea that we're the captains of our soul, and our fate and our lives rest in our hands. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? Personal responsibility is required of us Christians, but we can't lose the sense that ultimately our life's direction and course are guided by God alone. People get upset about taxes and how how much they have to pay in taxes. Well, you know who really should be upset about taxes is God because it's his money anyways, right? And I don't want to get into any big theological debates here with anyone, okay? I'll debate with you back and forth uh, about free will philosophy, determinist the, uh, philosophy, Calvinism, Arminianism, whatever, till like 3 a.m. in the morning until we find out that it's actually fruitless. But what I'm saying is that wherever you stand at any of those kind of theological uh, sticking points, we can all agree that the Bible explicitly says that he is ultimately sovereign and he orchestrates the universe with his loving hands. My grandfather, one of the greatest men I've ever known, he used to tell me this joke or, or anecdote that I really like, and I'm sure you guys have heard it too. A scientist walks up to God and says, Hey God, we've conducted some experiments, 
and tested out some hypotheses, and we've come to the conclusion that we can create human life without you. And God says, okay, well, you know, let's have a creation challenge then. So the scientist takes up God and his challenge, right? And he brings his team in to help him with the challenge. So the challenge begins, and the scientist picks up a clump of dirt, and God says, hey, get your own dirt. We like to put ourselves in the position of God by judging people, by making our plans without him and pretending our money doesn't belong to him. We are not God. No one is God except him alone. And I think we need to recognize the second point as well, that everything belongs to God. Everything. If you ever get an email from me, you see the following quote as the tagline for everything I send out. There is not a square inch over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And that's from an old theologian named Abraham Kuyper, who's really influenced me since college. And everything in this world belongs to God. Everything that you own belongs to God. Everything that you plan, all the money that you make, belongs to God. And it's easy to kind of mentally assent to that. We can believe it with our minds. But actually embracing this truth with our hearts and with our lives is tough. So let me tell you how I kind of personally do this. I try to be intentional and pray every single day that everything I say and do would bring honor and glory to God. And I also pray that God would help me to submit everything I have to Him and Him alone. I try every single day to relinquish my claim on my own life and submit it all to Him. And I fail all the time. But as I mentioned, His grace, His love, His mercy, His forgiveness, it covers me. And maybe you're here today, and maybe you're restless. Your life is in your own hands, and you you feel like you can't bear it all. And you realize that this life is fleeting, and and that you have no promise of tomorrow. August 3rd isn't promised to any of us, guys. There's this quote uh, from Augustine that I really love to share. He says this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You can't have true rest until you finally rest in God and submit everything you have, everything you are to Him because it's all His anyways. And maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, okay? And you're feeling like your life is just kind of out of control as long as it's in your own hands. There's no better day to accept Jesus as your Savior and submit everything you have, your life, your money, your plans, whatever, to Him right now. Because tomorrow is not promised to any of us. And maybe you're here and you are a Christian and there's areas of your life that you're holding back from God. There's no better time than right now to submit it to Him. Because tomorrow, because one hour from now, ten hours from now, is not promised. And what we celebrate right now is communion. The fact that Jesus came, that he died, and that he rose again. And that Jesus provides to us this perfect example of submitting everything we are to God the Father. As I mentioned last week, Jesus could have called down legions of angels to slay his enemies. But he chose to be faithful to God, his Father. He said, if it be your will, God, let this cup pass from me, but I'll submit anyways. He provides to us this perfect example 
So I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here. And in a few moments, I'm just going to invite you to come up here, take a piece of bread, dip it into, into the cup, and remember what God has done for you. He, he continues to do for you, and he will do for you as well. Because this life isn't promised. Because all the judging that we do, all the planning that we do, all the money that we save and spend and make plans for, it's all his. Your life belongs to him. If you don't know Jesus, you belong to him because without him, you're gonna be restless for a long time. So I invite you to stand and and please pray with me. And if the Lord leads you, just come up here and pray. Lay it all down at his feet. Stop fighting, stop grappling for control. Because I promise you, you're going to find sweet relief and liberation when you finally say that, Lord, my life doesn't belong to me. Everything I have belongs to you and you alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, please forgive us for the ways that we fail to submit our lives to you. I pray that you'll help us in the future, if you give it to us, to submit everything that we have to you, Lord. If there's people here who don't know you, who haven't submitted their lives to you, Lord, I pray that you'll prick their hearts and save them, Lord. Help them to believe. If there's people here who do know you, who walk with you on a regular basis, I pray that you'll help us all just to submit every single thing that we have to you. Our hearts, our idolatry, our time, our money, Lord. We give it all to you, Lord. In Christ's name.